Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher bakarbanu mikol hamim, venatan lanu et torato. Baruch atah Adonai, noten haTorah. Amen. May this podcast be to the refuah shlema of Esther, daughter of Sarah. Amen. Well, Close to Haksameak to everyone. I'm so excited. Purim is coming up real fast. So this is the Purim GYS. And um, Bezrat Hashem, this will be just a few practical things and some insights that will uh, hopefully be helpful for uh, having a wonderful, amazing Purim. So the first thing I want to talk about is the Geula, because I was talking on Shabbat about Sanhedrin 98a, and it was talking about the different scenarios for the redemption, the final redemption. And we know that Mashiach Yeshua has already come once, and he came riding on a donkey, and, and he came as Mashiach ben Yosef and Mashiach ben David simultaneously, and was really looking for his bride. You know, but when he came, it was first century Yisrael, and we were in cahoots with, uh, you know, Rome. And also uh, just not really uh, connecting with one another, having lots of baseless hatred, and having more concern for stringencies and halakha as opposed to mercy and kindness uh, true obedience and things like that. And so really just having lots of things in disarray and having the heart of the matter just be so not right. So as I'm talking about all this, I was thinking about the fact that talking about the true thing, the true fact, there it is, the true fact is that we have it within our ability to hasten the day of the redemption. You know, one of the cool things is, um, let's see, it is Kepha who talks about that. And it is in one of his letters. It is actually, um, in his second letter, chapter three, uh, verse 12, check it out. It says, as you look forward to the day of Adonai and speed, it's coming. So this is really cool because if you go back a verse, it says you ought to live holy and godly lives. So when you really look at the beautiful thing about what is the context of really waiting on Mashiach? What is really the context of hastening the day? What is really the context of knowing the times and being aware that Hashem can send Mashiach Yeshua at any time? It's all about living godly. It's all about living holy, you know, and I talked about the fact that we need to make sure that there are figs on the fig tree because Mark chapter 11 is such a beautiful chapter to show us that Mashiach came riding in on a donkey, which connects to Sanhedrin 98a saying that if we are not worthy of the redemption, then Mashiach is going to come riding on a donkey. But after he rides on the donkey, he comes up to a fig tree, which Yisrael is likened to a fig tree, by the way, and he saw no fruit. And it's just kind of like you got leaves. 
And I talked about the fact that in Bereshit chapter 3, where we saw those fig leaves was covering up a whole bunch of sin and idolatry. And it was just kind of very, very sad because not after, not too far after he left the fig tree, he goes to the Beit HaMikdash, which is like the home of homes for all mankind. You know, everyone's welcome to come into the house of Adonai and encouraged, by the way, to come into the house of Adonai. That's why there's literally a court of non-Jews right next to a sign that says no uncircumcised shall enter on pain of death. So it's just this beautiful thing of I want you to come close to me so that you get to experience me. And I hope that you would take the next step, which is to get rid of the foreskin of your heart, get rid of your evil, get rid of your lustful cravings after the things of this world, this flesh, you know, everything that keeps you away from living holy and godly lives, basically, you know, to, to go back to Kepha's writings. So, but he goes into the temple. I was just indexing that to show that Hashem wants all mankind and we don't need to look at people if they're not Jewish or if they don't want to be Jewish. The whole thing is about, do you want to live for God? Do you want to be holy? Do you want to be godly? And just so happens if you want to live holy and live godly, that's called a Jewish life. It's Judaism. It's Torah observance. It's mitzvot. It's having a heart that is completely consumed and on fire for Hashem. So there's all that. Um, but anyway, when you get to when Mashiach Yeshua gets to the temple, he sees all sorts of corruption. He sees all sorts of things going on with the Levites, with the Kohanim, with the people who are selling uh, all sorts of things in the courtyards. The courtyard is a holy place. The place is so holy that no one is wearing shoes. And I'm going to swerve real quick because back in Parsha Vayashev, which is my Torah portion, come on, um, the brothers of Yosef sold him for shoes. This is brought down in like different Midrashim. And one of the really big ones is the, the legends of the Jews, actually, on the sale of Yosef. And when you really think about what does that all mean, literally, what does that all tie to? If you're going to sell Hashem's anointed for shoes, you know, imagine Moshe at the burning bush not taking his shoes off. Imagine going into the Beit HaMikdash, not taking your shoes off. What do shoes represent? I mean, on the holiest day of the year, we don't even wear shoes uh, made out of leather. And some instances, we don't even wear shoes at all. You know, obviously, due to um, the circumstances of being in a public location, like a synagogue or something like that, you could you know, take your shoes off at your chair and things like that. And when, when it's not the actual service time and people are all crowded around you, um, you know, there's still kind of uh, preferences on that. So obviously make sure you're not trying to do anything extra out of the ordinary and weird, creating a whole bunch of discrepancy in the place. But Regardless of the fact, normal footwear, as far as leather shoes or anything dealing with that, 
we don't wear it. And it's something about holiness and not wearing this leather and, and things like that that is going on. And I know you may say, well, what about the tefillin? Because the tefillin are made out of leather. And it's like, yeah, but what are the tefillin all about? You know, because the tefillin are all about connecting with Hashem. And it's a holiness that surrounds our body as opposed to permeates and comes from within. You know, and when Hashem is drawing us near to him, he's wanting the inside to be changed and cleaned out and washed out. You know, I was thinking before starting this podcast that what do you do with a cup that's dirty? You know, and it's just like you drink a smoothie and, you know, you got all the remnants and things left in it. Well, obviously you can put it in a dishwasher and things like that. But one of the things that you immediately do, unless you're totally fine with crusty cups, um, you run water in it. And if you really want to wash the cup right there, it's easiest to clean the cup right after you finish your smoothie. You just rinse the water in it and all the remnants come out and it's like, wow, it's almost like a new cup. You just put a little soap and water to it and you're really good to go. And that's what it's like with Torah. That's what it's like with your relationship with Hashem. You know, that's what it's like abiding in Mashiach. I mean, that's all synonymous, you know. And so just kind of thinking about all of that and what is actually going on with us drawing near to Hashem and thinking about the Geula. We need to be cleaning out our vessels and drawing near to Hashem on a constant basis. And I was thinking that this is like the mikvah. The mikvah has water constantly renewing in it. It's not stagnant, you know. And when you think about, okay, I've davened my prayer time for today, you know, whether it's Shakari, Minka, Marif, and then you went on about your business, but then you come back and you do more prayer at a at a at the next prayer time. And you study the Torah earlier in the day, and now it's later in the day, and you have a few moments. You study the Torah some more. So you like keep this water going. You keep this water flowing. And when it comes to what was actually happening in the temple, when Mashiach came there, he didn't see any of that. He just saw stagnant, crusty cups and nobody wanted to fix it. And it was just kind of like, I can't bring the Geula like this. So the reason why we are still waiting on Mashiach is because when he came the first time, he came to re um, rectify us as human beings. Okay, so like when you think about Mashiach Yeshua rectifying humanity, and that's his first coming. You know, when you look at the fact of kindling a menorah, which is called the light of the world, it's a two-part process. The Kohen comes in to the holy place, obviously after he's done the shiny labor and things like that. And he comes in, he cleans the lamps, and he lights a few of the lamps. And then he goes and does another avoda. He'll either go do the Ketoret, which, by the way, if you read your Siddur for the incense prayer, you'll notice that he does the incense while he cleans the lamps and things like that. So he's preparing the menorah, right? So Mashiach Yeshua 
is doing that for us because we're called the light of the world. I mean, it's in Matidyahu. You know, he writes about that. And it's literally him recording Mashiach's words that says, We are the light of the world. Let our light so shine before all men that they may see our deeds and glorify our Father who is in Ashamayim. So it's like lighting a menorah when you look at the coming of Mashiach, you know. And by the way, the word Yavo is how you say coming. It's also how you say return. So having the come and the return of Mashiach is a very, very beautiful picture. And we even sing about it in our blessing after our meals on festive occasions. Notice we sing that, uh, Tehillim 126 is what I'm mentioning or referring to. And we sing that on occasions that are festive and joyous and glad, you know, and it's like, we're anticipating the redemption. Every single time we eat a bread meal, we're anticipating the redemption. Because you say the Birkat Hamazon after that, and it starts with Tehillim 126 on joyous days. And if it's not a joyous day, if it's just a regular day, no festival or anything like that, you actually recite Tehillim 137, which is all about being exiled to Babylon. And by the way, Babylon is the considered the first exile, even though it's technically the second exile, because the first exile was actually Mitzrayim. And Mitzrayim is actually the prototype of all the exiles. So literally any exile that we're experiencing is Mitzrayim, which is why it's so important to understand when we say in our daily brachot of the recitation of the Shema that uh, Hashem is our God who has redeemed us from Mitzrayim. So why do we do anything that we do? It should only be based off the fact that Hashem redeemed us from Mitzrayim. And Mitzrayim is called a place of narrow and straits. It's called a place of bondage. It's called a place of death. You know, a place that is devoid of what's called freedom. So you just kind of think about all of this. And um, that that's really, in a nutshell, the reason why we do what we do. And so looking at the two-part redemption that we're in, we're in the literally in the middle of it. And we're currently awaiting the return of Mashiach Yeshua to finish lighting the menorah. I mean, it's it's such a wonderful thing when you really can understand and look at it in that pun intended light, you know. So um, I'm pulling up a little thing here from um, who I like to call G Shekel because he does this beautiful thing about the fact that Hashem wants us to be obedient as opposed to sacrifice. And he's talking about Parashat Zav in connection with Yermiyahu chapter 7, which is the Haftarah this week. Also can be extended into chapter 9. So, uh, but he says this, he says, Thus says Hashem, Adonai of hosts, the God of Yisrael, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat meat. For I did not speak to your fathers. I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out to the land of Mitzrayim concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. But this is what I commanded them saying, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people. 
and walk in all the ways. Say all. Walk in all the ways. That means cold, like everything. Walk in all the ways that I have commanded you. You know, you have to think, if you look at your life, if I look at my life, how am I, how am I doing with this? Am I truly walking in all the ways that Hashem has commanded me? And am I truly listening to his voice? Is he truly my God? Am I truly his people? And notice when it says his people, which absolutely refers to Yehudim, Jews, Israelites, Hebrews. If we are God's people, that's what we are. We're nothing else. That's it. Because we're people who repudiate idolatry. We're people who are connected and attached and cleaving to Hashem. So if that's you, you're called his people. And so what ways am I walking in that Hashem didn't give us? You know, what voice am I listening to that Hashem never spoke to me? You know, it's like, so we got to pay attention to that. And then it says, yet they did not obey nor incline their ear, but followed after the counsels and dictates of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. Yermiyahu 7, 21 through 24. So when you really look at what's going on here is we're heading into Purim and I'm talking about Sanhedrin 98a. I'm talking about the return of Mashiach, talking about what was going on in Mark chapter 11 and tying this all up about our vessels and what is actually going on. Just take a moment and zoom out for a second and just think about I'm heading into Purim, Bezrat Hashem. And I'm anticipating Mashiach's return speedily and soon in our days, I may, may it be so. And I'm trying my best and doing my due diligence to study, to work and show myself approved. So what does that really look like? You know, like, is there anything else that I can work on and adjust? You know, because we're about to have a party like a big party and that party is going to come on the heels of a fast because from sunrise to sunset we're going to have a fast the is called the fast of esther or ta'anit esther and this is uh to hearken back to the fast that happened on the 14th of nisan during the account of purim which is the story of esther so the story of Esther features the story, the account of Purim. And you remember that part where uh, Haman says, I want to kill these people. Oh, king, long live the king forever. And he was like, OK, I'll take your money and here's my signet ring and seal the decree and send out the letters. And it was just kind of like, wow. And then Mordecai goes to Esther and is like, you have to do something because you're going to die along with all your people. Don't think that you're safe because you're queen and no one knows you're Jewish. It will be found out and you will perish if you don't act. And it's just kind of like, OK, so uh, everybody fast for three days. Then Mordecai comes back and is like, no, we can't fast for three days because we don't fast during the month of Nisan and 
we specifically don't fast on a festival. To which Esther responds that if we don't fast and if we all die and if we're all annihilated, there will be no Pesach. There will be no Nisan. And it's just kind of like, okay, so that's the intensity of the fast that we're going into. Right after that, we break fast into the Megillah. Literally, break right on into the Purim celebration, costume, um, having lots of music, having lots of festivity. You know, uh, I brought down that there are four mitzvot that we do. Well, I didn't bring it down. I, I brought it down for somebody else who brought it down. So I just picked it up and passed it around. But Shavile uh, Pink is, uh, is specifically my uh, quote, my source on this. But he was talking about for Parsha Zakor and uh, Purim, that there are four mitzvot that are each connected to the letter of Hashem's name. Because you know the whole thing about defeating Amalek is Amalek, as long as he is alive, Hashem's name is incomplete, which means no redemption. Which means that we still don't get to live in the reality of what we sing about in the Elenu. So, we have to be victorious. And one of the ways that we're victorious in defeating Amalek is actually celebrating Purim like joyously. And it's so crazy to me because the fight of our lives depends on our Simcha, depends on our Sason. And man, I cannot tell you how much in life right now lacking is Simcha and Sason joy, which is Simcha and Sason, gladness. I don't really, I mean, even myself, I'm just going to put myself out there right now because I know me, right? Like I'm not nearly as joyous as I feel we should be, as, as, as I feel I need to be, as we are called to be. Because by the way, if we don't serve Hashem in joy, we're under a curse. Uh, that's actually in Devarim. Let me source that out real quick. Did not plan to do this, but I'm gonna. It is found in Devarim 2847. So, uh, it says this, because you did not serve Adonai your God joyfully, and gladly in the time of prosperity. So if you look at the Ivrit on this, it's Lo Avata et Adonai Eloheka Besimka Uv Tuv Lev. Okay? Uvtuv lev with gladness of heart, or literally with goodness of heart. Good things. You know, I think about Shaul when he writes, you know, focus on things that are good, pure, holy, you know, and things like that. Uh, that's from his letter to Philippi. And so Tov here, it translates to good and goodness, beauty, gladness, welfare, and first use is Bereshit 24, 10, which is interesting that it's, that's the first use of Tov, uh, or Tuv is what we're looking at, which is actually Tov. 
But uh, if we look at that verse, just want to check that out real quick. He set out for Aram Naharim and made his way to the town of Nahor. So this is actually in the, oh my goodness. The context of this verse is looking for a wife for the Akidah, which is Yitzhak in this case, but the type and illusion, the Remez, all of that is looking for the wife of Mashiach, looking for the wife of the one who was bound, the one who was marked. You know, you think about, okay, guys, think about a wife, girls, think about a husband. Do you want someone who is joyous? Do you want someone who is happy? Like, not happy in a sense of like, oh, the roses are red, the violets are blue, the clouds in the sky are so, wow, it's just a beautiful day. So I'm like, that, not that kind of happy, but like, a uh, happy as in like Ashreha Ish, like happy is the man who is found being observant and delighting in Torah kind of thing. So if that's the case for us, then how much more for Hashem and the fact that we should be joyous and glad, right? So I just wanted to wrap this whole section up here that Knowing that we have the ability to hasten the redemption, to speed it up, Hashem has a set time for Mashiach to return, whether or not we care or pay attention or are aware or crying out to him or doing things that really uh, cause influence in the heavenlies, you know, because our actions, they either make awesome things happen up there or they make horrible things happen up there. And it's kind of like I broke this down to uh, some of our lapidim uh, in the area here that when your parents tell you to clean your room, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a personal story for me when I was a kid. My parents, when they told me to clean the room, they just said it. Just, just hey, son, need you to go clean your room. Uh, just pick up after yourself and make sure things are all good. I'll be in there to check. Now, they didn't give me a set time. I was the the literally the proverbial no, the, the man who did not know the time or the hour that that was going to happen. But I guarantee you that it was up to me if I was going to clean my room or not. And if I didn't clean my room and I'm just hanging out, it felt like man, are they ever even going to come back and check? Or on other occasions when I did clean my room, I can't really think if there was a time that I didn't clean my room, but obviously we have our messes that we make because life gets busy and we accumulate. But on the just kind of thinking, I don't remember ever doing that because I'm like a neat freak kind of person. So, but anyway, um, that's neither here nor there. So get to the point, right? This is a, this is a, a personal parable, I guess. But anyway, just elucidating this, that if I did clean my room, it was just kind of like, okay, well, they can come on in whenever they want to. Now I'm ready and I'll even go get them. You know, I'll cry out and be like, Hey mom, dad, you know, I clean my room or I go around like other parts of the house and be like, yeah, you know, just walking around all happy, nonchalant, you know, like I clean my room kind of thing. 
But they would come sooner than later if they saw me being productive and they saw me not hunkered down in my room trying to clean it or stomping around the house like I'm all I'm like I'm like hey can I go outside now you know and it's just like yeah of course you can go outside and it's like I guarantee you when I went outside they was like but that that room better be clean you know and they went in there and they checked it was clean it's all good but if I waited and waited and waited and they came in there and they said listen I asked you one thing you had one job clean your room but did you listen no you didn't clean it? No. Now, there's going to be some uh, some musar. Now, there's going to be some chastising. Now, there's going to be some lashes, you know. And it's funny because neither one of my parents were a chazan. I say that because tractate my coat brings down that uh, the, the person who does the lashes is actually the chazan. So, be nice to our chazan, everybody. He's a mason anyway, so why would you want to be mean to him, right? But anyway, so I bring that up because if we think to ourselves for any moment in time, we don't have to work for the redemption. We don't have to do anything or go all crazy being like, Hashem, will you rebuild the temple? Hashem, send Mashiach. Hashem, we're living for you. Hashem, we want more of the divine sparks to be gathered in. We want more converts and we want you to be here. We want to get out of exile. We want to get back into the promised land. We want to experience the final redemption. We're done. It's been 2000 years. Where are you? I guarantee you, if you think for a moment you don't want to do that, if we keep waiting for the set and appointed time that Hashem has set, that's only after every possible measure has been used to get done what we're supposed to get done. And that is that we're supposed to live holy and godly lives. And I guarantee you, if you don't want to do that, there's going to be some trouble. There's going to be some problems because again, back over here about hearkening to the voice of Hashem, it says that all things may go well with you back in our Yahoo passage. So yeah, nuclear war. Yeah. All sorts of crazy revelation, uh, story accounts, uh, happenings going on. Do we really want that? We have to ask ourselves, do we really want that? Do we really want half the sky to be darkened out and for stars to start being pummeled at the earth and for all sorts of uh, water supplies to be all wiped out and just people just dying over all everywhere for no reason. It's dragons and uh, birds and snakes and oh my, all sorts of stuff like going crazy and beasts and images and all sorts of stuff like just everywhere and people dying in the middle of the street and well, these two specific people getting killed in the middle of the street and then they just waking up like Modeani Lefeneca like three days later. That's actually in Revelations, by the way. That's so crazy that these two witnesses are killed in the middle of the street and everybody's all like, ah, whatever. It's a dead body. See this all the time. You know, don't you know tribulations happening? But anyway, that's what we're looking at if we don't get ourselves together in gear and wipe out Amalek and start headed towards the redemption. So, 
I say all that because if we merit, Mashiach will come on the clouds of glory. That's Sanhedrin 98a. And it's referencing Daniel chapter, I believe it's chapter 7, but I know it's in Daniel. So uh, coming on the clouds of glory will be the Son of Man. So Bezrat Hashem, that's what we're looking for. And it all starts with Purim, which is so crazy because what is Purim, right? Like this is a holiday where we're dressing up. We're in the Megillah. And oh my goodness, I'm just now remembering. I said there are four things that we're supposed to do for Purim, and they are all attached to the, the name of Hashem. So, unswerve, back on track. First thing is to read the Megillah. The second thing is to send out the delicacies. The third is to give gifts and alms to the poor. And the fourth is, I almost had it by memory, but I forgot it did. Hang on. Stand by, everybody. I'm going to find the fourth thing that we're supposed to do as a mitzvah for Purim. Um, I know what's in here. Purim. Purim, Purim, Purim. Ha-ha! Feasting and rejoicing. <sighs> Why am I stumped on that one? Is not Purim a lot of feasting and rejoicing? There's this thing called Hamantashen. It's the little hat looking cookies with the little fruit filling in the middle. And then, um, you know, we're supposed to do this thing called drink until we can't uh, distinguish between blessed be Mordecai and cursed be Haman. Tab on that. We'll talk about that in a second. So. If what I've said to you thus far is like, where is Amet doing or where is Amet going and what is Amet doing and why is this, why is this podcast even happening? Like, what's the deal? I'm talking about the fact that we need to use every opportunity we have to bring the redemption. And it's funny because the current trailer for the Avengers for the end game, <laughs> they say, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, whatever it takes whatever it takes, whatever it takes, you know, and it's just like crazy because like everybody's talking about whatever it takes and it's just like, that's the end game. And it's just kind of like, okay, so if the superheroes get it, then what's wrong with us? Because they're trying to save the world and we're supposed to be trying to save the world. Why? Because Mashiach called us salt, right? And we're supposed to assault the world, right? With goodness, of course. So I want to just break this down from Lakute Torah because knowing that we have the ability to merit and sweeten judgment is what my title for this is. Because knowing that everything doesn't have to go the way that it's been prophesied, especially in Revelation, is like mind boggling to me. Like, who are we? that Hashem is mindful of us in that manner. Well, we're about to find out. From Parsha Vayikra, yes, Parsha Vayikra, like what just happened like 7,000 days ago, feels like it was just last Shabbat and last week. But, you know. Anyway, uh, in the Lakute Torah, it says this, the spiritual parents of salt. Salt has parents. So if you look at the sefirot, right, there's 10 sefirot, sometimes 11, if you count keter. 
which is really just an extension of Chokmah and Bina uh, when you make them one. But, you know, that's neither here nor there for what I'm trying to say. So let's focus on Chokmah, which is literally on the left column, which is considered to be like judgment and all that kind of stuff. Like the left side is not a good side kind of thing. This is Hasidic thought or, or Kabbalistic thought. So over here, it's saying the spiritual root of salt is in the Gevorah of Abba. Okay, so Abba is a code word for Kokma. Ima is a code word for Bina. This is why the man is like the wise or the wisdom and the woman is like the Bina. She's the understanding. This is why... You know, the women have the intuition and we kind of have the little forethought and the like, oh, man, I got a great idea. And it's just like, so bring that to the wife and she will help you uh, either fix that idea or make it awesome. So either way, it's it's all good because sometimes we have ideas and it's just like, that's not a good idea. And we're not going to manifest that. <laughs> it's just like, OK, well, I tried. So that's your Gavora and uh, Bina conversation. At least that's my Gavora and Bina conversation. But shouts out to my Bina. Okay, but anyway, uh, it says the concept of Gavora of Abba is itself contradictory as Abba, which is Chokmah, is a form of Chesed. So now it's saying that the wisdom and the uh, Gavura is a form of Kesed, which is kindness, by the way. It says, while Gavura is the opposite of Chesed, as it represents severity and judgment. So you got this kindness intermingled with severity and judgment. And this is the root of salt. Okay, so... That's all in wisdom and Abba and all of that, right? So it says, how can Gavura exist within Chokma and how can salt be Gavura if it comes from Chokma? Regarding the Sephira of Chokma, the explanation is that in truth, this concept of Gavura of Chokma is not true judgment and severity. It is a form of judgment and severity that leads towards kindness. In other words, it's like a corrective thing. I'm not going to destroy you. I am not going to stand over you in a gray cloud, like ready to just strike you with a lightning bolt. But I'm going to cause some things to happen that will hopefully get your attention and cause you to be made aware of the choice that you should make so that you can stop having the same consequences that you've been bringing up on yourself. In other words, if you know you should be listening to the voice of Hashem, because by the way, if we go back to our Yermiyahu, it says the fact that the people, they actually went backwards and not forward. And uh, specifically, Yermiyahu 7.28 says, this is a nation that does not obey the voice of Hashem, their God, nor receive correction, which is what we're talking about here. And it says, truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. So you have this idea where if you're not 
undergoing this correction, then you're just you're removing yourself from the ability to experience the kindness. So this judgment and severity that's meant to help you, you're actually spurning it, which makes it like even worse. So it's like so now we're going to have to make some uh, adjustments here. And uh, what was supposed to lead you to kindness, we're now going to have to crank down on it, make it a little bit more um, helpful for you, so to say. So then it says the severity is a mere medium for the kindness to become a reality and come to fruition. Regarding salt, the Alta Rebbe explains as follows. Salt derives from water as salt is created through the evaporation process of water. Through the heat of the sun beaming onto the water, the water evaporates and condenses until it forms salt. Now, water is an aspect of chesed, of chokmah, okay? So you got your picture that we're talking about here that salt and water are actually contained within chokmah, which is the picture of the gevura and the chesed all together in chokmah, okay? In wisdom or in abba, if you want to get all technical with it. So it says that the water evaporates in condensates until it forms salt. The water is an aspect of chesed, and the evaporated water, which turns to salt, is the gevura. And it is for this reason that salt is sharp and bitter. So where am I going with this? Because, you know, there's this thing that we dip our challah in salt. And challah is like chesed overload. And challah is just like amazing. It's literally the bread of life. It's like free of judgment kind of picture, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And specifically, the challah is mean ha'aretz, which is brought forth from the earth and who was brought forth from the earth to bring us into like amazing chesed you know mashiach because his death was the the very manifestation of what we do symbolically with the hala we dip the hala in this salt and we dip it three times and when we dip it three times in salt that overturns the judgment. Just like when we dip ourselves in a mikvah three times, we go from a state of death into life. So later on in the Lakute Torah, it breaks this down. It says, whenever one eats a meal with bread, it's supposed to have salt. We're supposed to have salt on the table. The custom is to place salt on the table because the table is compared to an altar, which is Mizbeach. While eating of the meal is similar to a korban, which is a sacrifice or an offering is a better term. It says regarding the korban, the verse states that on every sacrifice, salt is to be placed. So then it says the post scheme and it says this is the kitsur shla brought down by the kaf hachaim. Okay says they write that salt is not to be removed from the table until after the Birkat Hamazon. Why? The reason for this is because salt protects the person from punishment. And it goes into all this thing that happens uh, with salt. Uh, I'm taking time. I might as well. Let's do it. Okay. Like, so when Jewish people sit at the table and delay until everyone settles after washing, 
Hasatan, who's the lion, by the way, always lurking, seeking whom he may constantly devour. The fact that we just did a mitzvah, we stir up the ability to be prosecuted. Okay? Anytime you do a mitzvah, you always stir up the ability to be prosecuted. Some kind of temptation to rise up and be like, oh, you were just so holy. Now let's go over here and do this. It's just like, man, you just ruined my holiness today. Like, and it's like, no. Nobody ruined it. You made the choice. And it's just like, well, I didn't feel like doing it. What was happening? It's like, well, there's this thing called a spiritual realm and it stirs up and gets all crazy on the on the other side of holiness when you do something holy. So this is why we have to go from mitzvah to mitzvah and always keep our mind constantly focused on Hashem. So it says that the Satan prosecutes against them. So after you eat a meal, the prosecution is on. It's just like, first of all, did they bless the food before they ate? No. Then they stole from you, Hashem, because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. By the way, if we did not know that the demons and that all of unholiness knows about Torah and mitzvot, you best start changing your understanding of that because even the demons believe and shudder as is written uh, to us. And Hasatan did not tempt Hava successfully by not knowing Torah. Hava and Adam knew Torah, okay? Hashem's voice is what they listened to until he, until Hasatan started scrambling it all up. And, you know, basically there's this whole idea of abolishing Torah, which means rabbinically to uh, not properly interpret Torah. So the rabbinic euphemism of abolish Torah means to improperly interpret, which is what Hasatan did. He abolished the Torah for Adam and Hava, and he was successful at it because he knew the ins and outs of everything. And so there's all that. But anyway, the prosecution is on. And so it says, so thus we need an advocate, right? It says thus salt serves as a protection against prosecution. So that's brought down by the Admur and the Rama, by the way, uh, some get you some Jewish literature. And it says salt contains this ability because it is the root of all Gevur, as is found in Chokmah, which is the highest Sephirah. And thus it has the ability, here's the key phrase, to sweeten all severities. The Gevurot, the Gevura can only be sweetened through their root. So I open up with that craziness about salt and what that all means is because we being salt of the earth, we have the ability to sweeten judgments. We have the ability to delay evil from happening, push off evil from happening, maybe even possibly eliminate evil from happening. And to me, that's overwhelming because, again, who are we, right? But that's what Hashem has called us to. And Mashiach affirms that. He says, let people see your deeds that they may glorify your father who is in Hashemayim. People who don't even know about Torah, people don't even have any idea. But because you're doing what salt does and you're letting the light shine for people you're taking the bushel off. You're putting the truth out there. You're letting out the secrets of Torah, the amazing, I want to throw stuff type drops from Torah 
like you're going to cause people who otherwise would not even care about the word of God or who would be against things of uh, religion, like you're going to cause them to be happy. You're going to cause them to call out and cry out to a God that they don't even know. And so when we're talking about the Elenu, how detestable idolatry will be banished from the earth and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess before Hashem. Why are they going to do that? Because the spirit of Hashem is going to be unleashed. Okay, so let us merit the redemption. Let us go into Purim joyfully and cause other people to be joyful. Even if we don't feel like being joyful, because I'll tell you right now, this is the very first Purim, which I know is going to be a battle. And I'm ready for it. And Hashem helped me because I just put myself out there like that. But, you know, we have to be. We got to be joyful. We got to do this, whatever it takes. And so I'm thinking about uh, everything since the drosh on Shabbat that Rabbi Griffin so wonderfully threw down about us really, you know, getting real, honestly. That we have to be people of realness. We have to call out lies, not like persecute people calling them out, but like, what is a lie? You know, the, uh, one of the lies is that the Shabbat is on Sunday. The Shabbat is not on Sunday. Now, we don't have to go around picketing and all that kind of stuff telling people Shabbat is not Sunday. Shabbat is Shabbat. Shabbat is what you call Saturday, but it's Shabbat. You know, and it's like, we don't need to do that, but we need to live it out kind of thing. And so in all areas of our life, we have to start doing these things. And so um, the only way we can do that is by starting from a place of joy. Okay. We have to be happy about it. Not happy. I'm, I keep saying happy because you can tell how uh, unexperienced I am with completely having joy on all levels, like turned up joy, like somebody get that guy a straight jacket because he's too joyous kind of person. But anyway, you got to start with joy. You got to start with being joyous. And one of my meditations that I've been doing, because I get so much time to kind of think uh, from now and from now and then, is that the way to do that is we have to constantly grab a hold of something. And Zaken and Rayford, i.e. Ishmael Kama, are also known as Ishmael Kama, because he's the war machine. Uh, he talks about the fact that he always prays, he says, just pray, just pray, just pray. And it's just like, I know anytime we hear just pray, it's just kind of like, okay, great. So who's the greatest person in the Bible? And everybody raises their hands. It's like, Yeshua. And it's just like, okay, thank you. That's the uh, Shabbat school answer. You don't get to answer anymore because we know what you're going to answer. But no, seriously, just pray. But then I kept listening and he goes, and when you're praying, one of the things that I pray is to Hashem, bind me to a mitzvah. And I was like, oh my gosh, I almost threw my chair just like directly opposite of him because obviously I'm not going to throw a chair to Zakin. But I was so turned up. I was like, wow, that's amazing. That's incredible. Bind me to a mitzvah. So when you pray without ceasing, I'm talking to Ishmael Kama here saying, when you pray without season, you're asking Hashem to bind you to a mitzvah? He's like, yeah. And I was like, oh my word. What kind of power is that? Okay, so like, 
we don't know what we're missing out on if that's not what we're doing. So I was thinking about that. And then I'm also thinking, just grab a hold of something you learned, something you read. Think about a letter, like literally one of the Aleph Bait. Because, by the way, did you know that all the Aleph Bait letters, they all mean something? Like Aleph means like the supreme ruler of the world, the head, you know, Hashem, because of the different parts of the letter. You add them all together and it equals the divine name, just like the sheen, by the way, if you take all the parts of the letter, it equals Mashiach. So the sheen, which is also a letter of fire, equals Mashiach, and we know the Torah is a fire. And then when you make the word fire, you take the Aleph and put it with the sheen, which is the word Aish, which is fire. So it's like Hashem and his Mashiach makes you on fire. And it's just like, uh, yeah, Lapid much, right? So anyway, eternal life much, you know, because eternal life is this, that we should know Hashem and his Mashiach, you know, kind of thing. So we should be on fire and, you know, everything about Hashemayim is fire, you know. Anyway, so um, just start thinking about all these things and you'll start to just your your Simka bar is just going to start ticking up. You know, it's going to be like tick, 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 tick. And you really won't get Simka overload. If you do, you'll get really tired because you'll be like so happy and people are going to think you're on drugs and they're probably going to give you a shot, like some kind of uh, happy medicine or something. Or, hey, drink this, you know, calm down. You're foaming at the mouth. You're, you need to sit in the corner kind of thing. So that'll kind of happen because your joy will like build up. But it's it's cool because... It gets to be infectious. And I've been noticing that when I get like really just mm, like a deep fired up and I'm not like really like yelling or screaming or anything, but like some of my peoples that I talk to, I'm working on starting a minion at my at my workplace, uh, Bezrat Hashem, you know, because all these different people who don't know about Torah and I'm teaching them about it. And, you know, Hashem works on hearts, you know, because you put the water and the seeds out there and he causes the growth and stuff, you know, kind of thing. So you just got to keep letting the sunshine so that the plants can grow. And so as I'm talking to them, you know, they start being like, what? You know, it's like I was talking about Takun about the brothers of Yosef, like, the brothers of Yosef, they sold him into slavery. And then later on, they have to come to Yosef in Egypt and they got to buy grain. And Yosef's like, hey, who y'all from? You know, who's your dad? You know, where your family at? You know, y'all got any brothers? You know, oh, yeah, we had one, but he's gone now. We got a younger brother. He's like, oh, you have a younger brother? Hey, why don't you bring him on down here? And by the way, y'all, uh, y'all can't get any more food until you bring him down here. And it's just like, okay, so that creates a whole problem because the brothers, if they bring Benjamin down, then, uh, they're first of all going to have to get through Yaakov and figure that out because he's just like, I will not trust my youngest son, my only and final son of Rachel with y'all, because I know that y'all cannot be trusted with him. Like what happened to my other son from Raquel? He gone. He's not here anymore. And you want me to take, I want to be like, oh yeah, I forgot all about that. Everything's cool. I know y'all love this kid. Like, like you loved your brother and it's cool. You just go ahead and take, yeah, sure. Take him all the way down to Egypt from the land of Canaan. 
It's totally a short trip. And it's nothing will possibly ever happen to him. You're just going to the most uh, highest security, highest levels of uh, all kinds of debauchery and all sorts of just wickedness. Sure, if you go down there with Benjamin, it'll be fine. And it's just like, no, it's not going to be fine. I'm still not fine because Yosef was taken from me. And now you want Benjamin because you say some guy down there that you spill the beans to wants you to bring him. And then the brothers all have to start fighting and Yehuda has to step up and be the true leader and be like, listen, the his life is, is my life. So if he doesn't come back, then I... It, it just ain't going to happen. So I'm his guarantor and that's it. Like I'm stepping up and I'm fighting for him, which by the way, he was the one who wanted to sell Yosef. And so, you know, leading the brothers into getting rid of Yosef. And now he's like leading the brothers into standing up and fighting for Benjamin, which is a type and shadow allusion to being willing to, if they had the opportunity now for their younger brother, which was Yosef before now it's Benjamin. Now they're going to fight for their brother. They're not going to cast him out. So they finally get that going and Yosef pulls it out. He keeps like mm, on him because he's like, well, you know, um, you brought your brother and that's cool. Um, here's some provisions for you. And he tells one of his servants to put some of his possessions, namely his silver goblet, into Benjamin's sack. So when they're walking out and get past maximum security, they find out that Benjamin has stolen, quote unquote, even though Yosef set it up. And it's just kind of like, oh, snap. We done took from this guy. I know he going to kill us. I know we going to have to fight. We probably going to have to wipe out a whole super nation, a super country, because that's what Egypt was. Egypt was literally called the world, according to ancient uh, understanding and commentary. So we're literally going to have to destroy the world if they come at us with some crazy talk, because somehow there's a golden cup in Benjamin's sack. And on the other note, Benjamin, what's wrong with you? Like, why would you do this? And it's just kind of like, OK. So they go back. Uh, the people are like, yeah, we know what you did. And they're like, listen, no, we didn't do it. Let us talk to him. We'll get this all sorted out. We don't have to get crazy. Because we can get crazy and we know crazy. Remember Shechem? And they're like, Shechem. That's like not even a fraction of who we are. Like, you don't want none of this. And they're like, can we just go talk to Yosef? Because right now we're wasting time and we get, we really need to get back to our father. And Benjamin needs to go back to his father. So they get with Yosef. Yosef is all testing them and trying them and like showing out. And Ephraim and Menashe is there showing back out. You know, by the way, for those of us who did not grow up Jewish and we've converted to Judaism or we've now become attached to Judaism through Mashiach Yeshua, which makes us Jews, we are literally Ephraim's and Menashe's B'nai Yosef, which is why I did a podcast a few weeks ago called B'nai Yosef, because we have to own it. We have to own the fact that Judaism is now our true Amuna, and it's the way that we walk and it's the true faith. You know, it's not Christianity. Christianity is Asav. It is the goat to Azazel from the Yom Kippur service because there are two goats for Yom Kippur. There's one to Hashem. There's one to Azazel. 
Both of them are going to get sacrificed, but one is considered holy and gets sacrificed in the temple. And that is the goat that's called Yaakov, by the way, according to uh, commentaries and specifically, I believe, Rebbe Nachman's uh, Humash brought this down. And Asav goes out into the wilderness, falls off a cliff and gets stoned and all that kind of stuff. But they look alike and they both have an opportunity to be goats for Hashem, but it's by the lot that is cast, which is Goral, not Purim, but Goral. And whatever lot falls on which is what happens. And so the lot literally fell to Yaakov in the overall scheme of everything that we know as far as our history. That Hashem says, Yaakov I've loved and Esau I've hated. Uh, make sure I source that out because that's a very strong point. And that is in um, the writings. Slika, I believe it is. No, I'm not going to believe it is anything until I get the source. Uh, was I right? Was I right or was I left? Okay. Uh, obviously, Shaul, because he's such a Jew and such a scholar, he uh, quotes this in the Egedit to the Romans, chapter 9. But check it out. What's his source? Malachi. Malki. It says that. Um, let's see here. Let's go to chapter one. It's crazy that it's in the first chapter. Just right there. Such a common verse. And it's just kind of like, wow. So what's going on? Okay. So Malki. Or Malachi, for us English speakers, a prophecy, the word of Adonai to Yisrael through Malchi. I love you, says Adonai, but you ask, how do you show us your love? Adonai answers, Asaph was Yaakov's brother. Okay, and by the way, Asaph and Yaakov are twins. If we didn't know that, now we do. Okay, they look exactly alike, just like the Yom Kippur goats. Okay, says, yet I loved Yaakov. But hated Asaph, I made his mountains desolate and gave his territory to desert jackals. So, are you going to be B'nai Yaakov? Or are you going to be B'nai Asaph? Are you going to be the goat to Hashem? Or are you going to be the goat to Azazel? Uh, so you got to figure that out, right? But anyway... Uh, you get to this whole picture about, uh, cause I swerved off of Ephraim and Menashe and owning our faith and being B'nai Yosef and then the brothers who are B'nai, uh, Yehuda and B'nai Yehuda, B'nai Yosef really is all one because Yehuda and Yosef are truly one and they're in the tribes because really Ephraim and Menashe are two out of the 12 tribes. And so there's all that. So really it's all the, all of Israel includes Yehuda, Yosef and Ephraim and Menashe, all that. Okay. So Yosef is like pulling this all out. He's just like, I don't know if I can let y'all go. I can't believe y'all stole from me. Benjamin's going to have to suffer. He can go to jail. Y'all can leave. And it's just like, okay, so now we're in the same exact place we were when it was like, well, Yosef is going to go away now because we're tired of him. And it's like, now they're having to fight for Benjamin. So are we going to just let him go or are we going to fight for him? 
And when Yosef sees that they're going to fight for him and they're going to do literally whatever it takes, whatever it takes, like 10 times, because the brothers are like, all 10 of us are going to throw down. And so it's just kind of like, okay, well, y'all have obviously made Teshuvah and uh, that's great. So the tikkun it was made that the the younger brother that they were so willing to sell into slavery and just let him be gone and kicked out the house and even call him dead for all intents and purposes. Uh, that's now been rectified. That has now been tikkuned is the word. And so uh, through how they fought for Benjamin. And then that's when Yosef revealed himself. And he's like, well, I need Yosef, by the way. And the story goes on. So that's Parsha Vayigash and all that. So Parsha, oh my gosh, is really what it is. But so anyway, I saw I share things like Takoon and it's just like, you really had time to take all that. But no, I didn't. I kind of capsized that into like a little uh, two minute spiel. But Takoon, I mean, it's just like now someone who doesn't even know Hebrew they know this one word called tikkun, and it has to do with the revealing of the Redeemer of the people of Israel. It's like, say what? Because you realize I tied it to the fact that everybody and their grandsister in first century Israel that was against Mashiach, they acted like they didn't know who he was when he was Yeshua ben Yosef or called the king of Israel, called the son of man, which is a euphemism for Mashiach. And I got to throw this out there. Uh, we were listening to a Rebbe, Ishmael Kamenai. I believe it was. Oh, yeah. The Raging Canadian uh, is who we like to call him, who is uh, Rabbi Yehezkel with Kehilat Melech Yisrael. Um, and they're up north and they're just a bunch of, uh, yeah, Jewish believers and he was saying the Ben Adam term is about being a son of the earth, the one who goes into the earth to bring life because Hava is called the mother of life. And Hava was taken from the man, which was taken from the dirt. And so you have this whole thing about the dirt really being the parent because that which produced man is the earth. And so when Mashiach goes back into the earth through death, he can now sprout from the earth and bring life. So his death in the earth brought life. And so through him, we now experience life after death or through death. Either way, through, after, and it's just kind of like, okay, Ben Adam is way more than I ever thought. Son of man, basically. Son of man is has that connotation that it's a place where death is going to bring life. So when we die to ourselves, when we let go of things that uh, we think are more important than Hashem, we're actually going to receive life and not death. So that's really cool when you think about it. So anyway, um, so just be joyful. It's it's contagious. It really it truly, really is. Because, you know, after I had this conversation with this person, we both kind of just went our ways and it was just kind of like, man, oh, wow, that's ridiculous. I don't even know what to do with that. I don't even know what you just said to me, but I feel it and I kind of get it. Like, that's serious. Like, I ain't never heard anything like that. It's just kind of like keeps going, right? And I'm thinking to myself, like, oh, man, I wish I could tell you the rest of the story because, like, it's, it's awesome. And when you look at how it ties to Mashiach and how it ties to Yehudim today and things like that, 
So anyway, um, let us be joyous and let us bring on the redemption. I don't know how many times I could say that. So I planned on just kind of sharing some things uh, from the sources. And I just think I'm going to skip all of that and and make sure that I uh, get down to the, the definition of defeating a Melek. So what we have to do with Purim is we really have to just use this opportunity to do everything that we possibly can to manifest the name of Hashem and bring on, you know, the 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 groundwork, the the highway in the wilderness, if you will, for the return of the king. So I'm going to go to Shonuf Pincus over here and I'm on page one and he says that Yavo HaMelech Vehaman HaYom. That spells out the name of Hashem when you look at the initial letters to that. So let's go here to Esther 5, 4. It says, if it please the king... Let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. And I love this, too, because Rabbi Trugman gets on to this uh, commentary and he talks about the fact that remember in Ghani Den, the serpent enticed Hava and Adam to come to his meal, namely the forbidden fruit. But yet in this story, we're seeing a rectification of that scenario because Esther through the council of Mordecai is inviting the serpent to their meal. And Haman is likened to the serpent, by the way, because he is alluded to in the word for Hamin, which is to eat from the tree, which is the, it came out of the mouth of the serpent. So there's all of that. But anyway, so that phrase that says, let the king and Haman come today. That phrase spells out the name of Hashem. So we need to draw out, okay, draw out all of our doubts, all of our fruitless labor, because uh, Amalek comes from the word Amal, which means to toil and to labor. And there's labor that you can do that you can toil that is doesn't bring fruit and you end up being just a fig tree with no figs, just leaves. But then there's toil that you can do that is fruitful, that will cause you to be a fig tree with leaves and with figs. So you're covering up for your fruit. You're being modest about the things that you've learned in Torah. Because Eruvin, uh, let me go to that real quick. Eruvin, stand by. It's funny because I just... Uh, just talked about this on Shabbat. You would think I had this like ready on cue, right? So, uh, going through the files, talking all while everybody up in here just need to smile. Okay, so maybe I just need to smile. I need to be more happy. Yep, talking to field space. That's what's happening. You're hearing it. It's brought to you live. 
Oh, obviously it's in the same spot because it's all about Purim. So, okay. One moment. Okay, I'm going to do it this way. Please enjoy this music while your party waits. Just kidding. Don't do that. Ah, okay. Brugashem. Sometimes it takes a minute to find your sources. This is why we have to be okay with this because you have to you have to find your sources sometimes. Okay, Eravine 54a. Uh, I was thinking it was that, but anyway. Rabbi Hia Bar-Abba said that Rabbi Yohanan said, okay, so you got Hia, who is the son of Abba, and then you got Yohanan, okay? So got three witnesses to this source as it's dropped down here in the Talmud. Says, what is the meaning of that which is written? He who guards the fig tree shall eat its fruit. Mishle 27:18. It says, why were matters of Torah compared to a fig tree? Just as the fig tree, whenever a person searches it for figs, think Mark 11, Yeshua's at the fig tree searching it. He says he finds figs in it. So Yeshua didn't find figs in it. So what does that mean? So back to this tractate, he finds figs in it as the figs on the tree do not ripen all at once. Okay. And then, uh, so it says, so that one can always find a recently ripened fig. So take that now to the parable of the virgins of the Betulot, let's put it that way, or the Almot, since we know those words now. Yes, the virgins, the one who have not been uh, intimate with a man and they're waiting on the bridegroom to open the door and they got lanterns and they need to have oil in them, which oil, by the way, is a euphemism for Torah and uh, all sorts of stuff like that. And so at any moment, the door could be open and you need to make sure your lantern's lit and ready to go and you got extra oil. There are some people who ran out of oil and they had to leave and go get oil. And by the time they left, the door opened and the people who were already there with their oil ready to go. Again, this is a picture of the redemption. <laughs> got to be ready. It could take Mashiach like six months or a year or three years or, oh my goodness, we don't want to think beyond any of all that, right? But whatever. The thing is, is that we're going to get so caught up in having figs on the tree that we're not even going to know he came up to the tree looking for figs until he starts eating from the tree. And we're like, oh, hey, Mashiach's here. That's why I always pray after the Amidah on Shabbat that may we be found faithfully working in the field of the harvest. And Hashem, please give us more workers because we need to be like that person who has to be told, stop working. You're done. Clock out. Let's go. And it's like, if we can treat the redemption like that, hasten in the redemption like that, then that's, that's how you do it. And if you want to try to predict dates and try to get into the date orientation, that, by the way, is a tool of Hasatan. And that was brought down by Rabbi Griffin in the uh, the first Aliyah. 
on Parsha Zav. Like literally this week he went into that talking about predicting the times and it actually ultimately results in the fact of delaying the redemption. So every time you predict the redemption and get all into the craziness of trying to figure out when's this supposed to happen, when's this nuke supposed to go over there, when's this person supposed to infiltrate here, when you do that, you slow down the redemption. Just just putting that out there. But when you put figs on the fig tree, you speed it up. When you have oil in your lamp, you speed it up. When you tell Hashem, I'm sorry for not putting you first in my life and making a priority to attach myself to a mitzvah as much as possible, then that's how you speed it up. Okay, so that's this opportunity we have in Purim. So now uh, back to a Purim drop that I was getting into. Um, dun, 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 dun. So yeah, those letters. So drawing it out that's that um and by the way i'm still just kind of amazed that i never even thought of this but literally haman and his sons were hanged on the 16th of nisan and it's funny because mashiach was hanged on the 14th of nisan and it's like so when mashiach is hanged he's taken into the grave or the tomb but it can't hold him. But then when Haman and his sons are taken into the tomb, that's it. They're wiped out. And there's salvation for all nations. Because you realize in Esther, it talks about the fact that people took up on themselves the yoke of the kingdom. So uh, before I get to that source, I just want to point out, this is really the Agarit to Colossians. To Colossae, uh, chapter 2, verse 15, it says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, having made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the stake. You know, this gallow is the pendulum, pun intended, that you put a mirror between the 14th of Nisan and the 16th of Nisan, there's gallows on both sides. There's wood, stake, tree, whatever you want to put right there, hanging. Okay. Yes, there's a difference between crucifixion and hanging, but the picture of a tree, a person dying and all sorts of implications to that. Let's focus on those points. And the, the crux is the 15th of Nisan, which is the beginning of Pesach. So you're coming out of getting all the hamets out, which is all of the leavening, which is all of that, which stirs up in us our ego and tells us, that, hey, Hashem may have told me this, but I'm thinking this, and that's what I'm going to go for. And it's like, that's Hamitz. Not supposed to have that on Pesach. Get rid of it. Anyway, if you want to, if you really want to get out of Egypt, remember, hearken to the voice of Hashem. And so you got the 15th of Nisan is making the determination. And it's really awesome that when you attach yourself to Mashiach and his stake, you overcome, destroy, and annihilate Haman and his stake. Because Haman was really focused on putting Mordecai, which would be a type and shadow of Mashiach, by the way, uh, on a stake. And it's just like, you're not going to be able to do it. And it's just like, because if you even think that you can, Hashem's going to turn the tides. He's going to pay socket. And you're going to end up being the one on the stake, which is what happened. 
And so even though Mashiach was put on the stake, ultimately it did not cause him to be annihilated. It actually caused him to bring life, which is just amazing to me. Ben Adam, again, from his death, he brings life. Killing Mashiach only made him more alive, you know, kind of thing. Because we know that Azotic is more alive in their death than they are in their lifetime. So what does that say about Mashiach? Because he says, I'm the true vine, which vine is a euphemism for Azotic. So let's look at this. Because the picture of the redemption is typed and shadowed full out in the story of Esther, which features the account of Purim. So I'm picking up in chapter nine and verse 20. Mordecai recorded all these events and sent Igerot, which is letters to all the Yehudim who were in all the provinces of Melech Ahashverosh, the near ones and the distant ones, charging them to observe annually the 14th day of the month of Adar and its 15th day as the days on which Jews gained relief from their enemies. So we're literally celebrating relief from our enemies in the month of Adar, which precedes Pesach, which precedes Rosh Hashanah. Like the two times on the calendar that death has overcome. And it's just like, yeah, do that in Adar. We'll just put it all together right there. And it's interesting to note that Purim is literally celebrated in some places like a week ahead of time. And sometimes even after, like sometimes depending on where you are, could possibly even take up the whole month of Adar because we're doing so much to get ready for it and thinking about it and studying it and stuff. So there's all that. But um, they're specifically the 14th of Nisan, the four, wow, the 14th of Nisan, no, the 14th of Adar, which is a, a, way, a, a month away from the 14th of Nisan. Come on now. Come on. The 14th of Nisan to the 14th of Adar or the 14th of Adar to the 14th of Nisan. That's a month apart. That, like that's that's cool, you know. And so anyway, um, that's the true Purim. And then if you're in a walled city like Shushan, then you also celebrate on the 15th. So we don't typically celebrate the two days back to back, but we do celebrate the 14th of Nissan. Or I keep saying Nissan. It's I'm pretty sure I'm saying that on purpose, even though I feel like I shouldn't be. But I, I don't know. I just the 14th of Adar is like the 14th of Nissan. That's the day we're granted victory and we triumph over our enemy. And Mashiach did it with joy on the 14th of Nisan. So we're doing it with joy on the 14th of Adar. That's probably why I'm saying it. It's joy is what's going to cause us to triumph and put our enemy to shame. Are you serious? I'm re-looking at the Agedit to Colossae, chapter 2, verse 15, the verse I just wrote. And it literally says Mashiach celebrated his victory. Like. That's insane. Triumphing over them. He celebrated. And then Shaul goes right into let no one judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a festival, a new moon or a Shabbat. And it's like, yeah. So when you start being Jewish, 
because you celebrate triumphing over your enemies, namely death, and you start entering into life. Uh, don't let anybody look down on you for that. And if you really understand what that means, because then you go back to verse 14, it says, having canceled the debt ascribed to us, Mashiach nailed the debt, like the seal of the decree to wipe us out that Haman put up, that was wiped out through the fact of the second follow-up letter that was sent by Esther and Mordecai that the Jews need to defend themselves. And it was just like, if anybody lays a hand on a Yehudi, according to the decree of the letters that was sent out by Haman, just remember on the 16th of Nisan that Haman and his sons were hung and they were left up there. Literally, uh, I'm reading some commentary here that Dr. Sakal shared with me. He says that um, these people were left hanging for quite a bit. Let's see. Because uh, they're talking about the fact of uh, the, that uh, Melech Shaul, he was hung on a stake with his sons, beheaded and all that kind of stuff. Now, here it is. It says, it was done because, this is commentary to chapter 9 and verses 11 through 15. It says, Esther answered and showed and said to them, because King Shaul, which by the way is her grandfather, because she's a descendant of Shaul. It says, because King Shaul killed the Gibeonite converts, his sons were hanged for six months. Second uh, Shamuel 21.8. If this was done because their father killed Gibeonite converts, how much more should Haman and his sons, who wanted to destroy the entire house of Israel, be left hanging forever? So, uh, leaving a corpse hanging on a tree overnight for more than a few moments, devouring 21, 23, that's not good. So Esther was like, yeah, so based off this other precedent, because by the way, the people who killed Shaul and his sons, they, they left their bodies just out, like whatever kind of thing. And so Esther was like, all right, we got this. We're going to take vengeance and we're going to do it. I will avenge. And so uh, it says that Esther requested that their corpses be strung up on the tree gallows Haman had made. This was to strike fear in the hearts of the Jews' enemies, the Targum Shani on Esther 9.23. So she violated the Torah provision for Torah prohibition for the sake of demolishing and destroying the enemy. Again, whatever it takes. So, um, yeah, they were hung on a 50 cubit tree, one underneath the other with equal spaces between them, which by the way, if you look in the Megillah, the actual scroll, when the sun's names are named out, they're literally in a line, like one on top of the other with spaces in between. So that's to show us that that's how they were hung from the 50 foot gallow, 50 cubit gallow, Sleeka. And then it says, uh, on the other hand, Mordecai and Esther specifically wanted to have Haman and his sons hung from the tree, which is the tree of Torah, 
to show that even evil has a place in the creation of the one God and that the ultimate destiny of evil is to hang their dead and completely defeated to show us God rules over all. Was that not shown at Mashiach's death? Him hanging there as a semblance of sin, showing that Hashem rules over all. So what looked like defeat and utter defeat for us was actually victory and forever victory. So um, that's insane. So anyway, so that is a little bit to why the 14th and the 15th are a thing. So on the 15th of Adar, let us continue in the spirit of Purim and continue crying out and praying to Hashem and attaching ourselves to mitzvot and really defeating and wiping out Amalek. Let's let nothing of Amalek be left for Shabbat para, which is coming up. Because after you go out to battle, you have to be sprinkled with the ashes of the red heifer, right? Because you've been contaminated by a corpse. So we have uh, atonement and purification coming up. So let's get down to business and take care of business with our battle, right? And do it joyously. So later in chapter nine, going down to uh, 27, because this is where the Torah comes in and conversion. It says the Jews confirmed and undertook upon themselves. The word is cabal. Sounds familiar like Kabbalah. It means to receive or take up on yourself. When you do that, by the way, that is a form of conversion. So when Mashiach says, take my yoke upon you, you have to really think, what is the yoke of Mashiach? It's the yoke of the kingdom. It is Torah. So he's literally calling us to convert, like just like in Purim, which is considered a higher level than the conversion that happened at Shavuot. And so it says, they accepted upon themselves and their posterity and upon all who might join them without fail to observe these two days in their prescribed manner and their proper time each year. So they're bringing in, they're bringing in converts. So yeah, there's, there's that. And then it says, um, and verse 28, these days should be remembered and celebrated by every generation, every family, every province and every city. These days of Purim should never cease from among the Jews, nor shall their remembrance perish from their descendants. So there you go. Purim is totally biblical. And uh, I love how Olive Beta brought down the fact that the festival of Purim is named after the instrument or device that was used to plot their destruction or our destruction. It would be the equivalent of saying uh, to celebrate our victory from the Holocaust. We're going to call this day gas chamber. And it's just like, oh, you can't do that. And it's like, well, that's what we did with the festival of Purim because Haman is the one who cast out the poor the lot. And, uh, he said that, uh, you know, I'm going to kill the Jews now. And it's like, no, we'll take that lot and we'll call it Purim. And we'll, we'll cast you out and destroy you. Namely, Hashem is going to do that. So there's that. So now I've been going for quite a while and I just want to kind of wrap it up with, uh, some more Trugman. Uh, after I say this, from Dr. Sakal on verse 28. No, let's go to 27. Okay, I got, I like, okay, I like this. Okay. First of all, he's sharing uh, chapter 9, 27 from Esther, and it says this on commentary. 
the acceptance by all the Jews of the injunction to celebrate Purim every year forever was a Kabbalah. Okay, again, we talked about that, Kabbalah. An undertaking, which under the laws of Nedarim, which is vows, applied not but also to their offspring to all the generations. The celebration of Purim is thus binding on every Jew today. So the Kabbalah is like not just yourself, but you make all of your offspring like obligated to uphold this. That's ridiculous. I mean, that's like, that is a higher level than Shabbat because Hashem asked when he gave the Torah, I need you to have guarantors that you will uphold it. Not necessarily your offspring will uphold it. You know, like it won't be an obligation for them, but it's an obligation for you. And they went through the whole gamut and it was like, well, we'll, we'll say it's our fathers. It's like, no, your fathers are going to die. You're going to be still alive. Who's going to guarantee that? It's like, well, fine, we'll guarantee our children. And it's like, great, I'll give you the Torah now because your children are alive after you. You have to teach it to your children so that they can hold you accountable. But now what we're looking at here with the Kabbalah, the undertaking, is that it's not just the fact that you have guarantors. It's like you have to do this regardless. And it's generation to generation to generation. So the fact that we're celebrating Purim today, we're perpetuating this Kabbalah. Next verse says, and these days should be remembered and observed. We remember them through the reading of the Megillah on Purim night and morning. Because you're supposed to read the Megillah twice. Why? Because there are two Mashiachs. That's not really the source, but that is my source. Okay, but anyway, no, seriously, you're supposed to read it twice. You're supposed to read it at night, which is the air of Purim, which is what we're doing at Sar Shalom, get you some synagogue. This 14th of Adar. I got it. Okay, Brukashim. Okay, and um, it's going to be awesome. It'll be a night to remember. And then in the morning, we're going to need to do it on our own. Okay, so the following day before sundown, preferably in the morning, read the Megillah again. Because this is how you remember these days. And it says, we observe the day of Purim through the giving of charity to the poor, sending portions of food to our friends and feasting. Okay. And we talked about uh, the fact that reading the Megillah is the fourth one. And those make the four letters of the name of Hashem, the Tetragrammaton. So remember and observe which is a core and Shomer, which is interesting because that's what we're supposed to do with the Shabbat. So um, that's legit when you think about that, that we treat Purim just like we treat the Shabbat. How about that? As far as the remembering and observing and some very practical things to do with that. All right. So let's see here if I can find my source on the Blessed be Mordecai and cursed be Haman. <clears throat> okay, so Rabbi Truman's bringing down the Rama and the Mishnah Berua. Brura. Brura. Berua. Oh my gosh, that's such a hard thing to say. B R U R A H. The Mishnah Berua. Berura. Oh my gosh. Anyway, you know what I'm saying. 
Yes, I did pull a mighty hover on us. Okay, you know what I'm saying, because that's, for some reason, I can't say it. Anyway, that source and the other source clarify by falling asleep after drinking slightly more than usual, one can, in this manner, fulfill the directive to not know the difference between blessed is Mordecai and cursed be Haman. So, you know, we're supposed to drink on uh, Purim till we can't distinguish. So it's funny because it's like, well, yeah, we're supposed to get, we're supposed to drink until we can't really distinguish. Uh, did we just say blessed be Haman or blessed be Mordecai? What did we just say? I don't know. Okay, good. It's like, great. You fulfill the mitzvah of Purim. It's just like, that doesn't mean exactly what you think it means. Literally, if you really, because like, it doesn't mean get drunk. So I love the fact that these two sources bring down, if you just drink until you put yourself to sleep, then you can't tell the difference, you know, and by drinking until you put yourself to sleep, you only drink a little bit more like an extra glass or two and you just kind of got tired and you're just like, I'm out, you know, and it's just like, great. That's awesome that you do that. So it's just kind of like, wow. So if we go back, the other cool thing is he goes into saying, why would the sages encourage us to drink to the point of not knowing the difference between blessings and curses or between evil and good or good and evil? Slika. He says, secondly, although drinking alcohol is permitted and is even enshrined in many ceremonies on Shabbat and holidays, it's never, hear me out, it is never encouraged to overdrink and certainly not get drunk. So additionally, it seems somewhat incongruous to be drunk or to be drinking large amounts of wine, considering that the Jews in Shushan lost their saltiness. Oh, I mean, I mean, lost their merit. Sleeka, I just was reading and I just saw that. I don't know. They lost their merit by having similar similarly at the feast of King Akashverosh. They lost their merit by behaving similarly, by getting drunk and overindulging and doing that. Because King Akashverosh at the beginning of the story of Esther is having a big feast. There's naked people there. There's riches and jewels and all sorts of unkosher food. And the whole theme of the party is, ha ha ha, Hashem didn't save you. No redemption for you. And you're not building the temple. Ha ha ha. Come and party with me. Dress up, let's celebrate Halloween and Xmas and Schmeister. Not really Schmeister because he didn't resurrect. So, yeah, let's do that all together at once. Ready? Shall we? And you know what? I like this so much. Let's just do it for at least six months or however long we can do it. So that's what caused the story of Purim to sprout up is because we decided to go chill and party with not looking at being redeemed because it was right after the uh, exile to Babylon that this all happened. And it's just like after Babylonian exile, which was supposed to be 70 years, which King Akashverosh knew that, and it was not quite 70 years, but it was pretty close within a few years. And he was just like, ha, it's not going to happen. So again, precedent on hastening the redemption, hastening uh, the final redemption, hastening getting out of Geula, it doesn't have to be the whole span. It can be earlier. So, yeah, there's that. So anyway, the king wanted to make sure it wasn't early and he wanted to celebrate and everybody went. And Hashem was like, fine, I'm going to let Haman wipe y'all out. I'm going to let Amalek wipe y'all out because 
y'all are more his sons than uh, you're my sons right now. So anyway, so when we look at the fact of the drinking until we can't distinguish, it's just like that caused us to get in this problem. So he keeps going over here. He says, therefore, we need to delve into deeper reasons why the sages gave us this unseemingly or given us this seemingly counterintuitive mitzvah. So he gets down and he's going, he's going, he's going. Okay, so one thing is that he says this. According to the Kabbalah and Hasidut, the key to understanding the drunkenness of Purim is in the teaching that one should drink Ad De Lo Yada until one does not know. So he says that uh, he wrote in a previous article about the Purim story and its corresponding to the Ghani Din, which we've done on this podcast. And it says, especially to eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, since the serpent used, or since the serpent used the enticement that by eating from the tree of knowledge, one would become like God. Here we go with the Yada, with the knowing the difference between good and evil. Kabbalah and Hasidut understand the Purim feast as a profound opportunity to affect a deep rectification of the concept of knowing as associated with the tree of knowledge. Okay, we're, Purim is about spitting out the fruit and stopping the blame, stopping the blame game and spitting out the fruit. Okay, then it says, and okay, so deep rectification of the concept of knowing as associated with tree of knowledge. In the case of Ghani Den, the sinful eating was undertaken in order to know. In a complete reversal, the drinking on Purim is undertaking precisely to not know. So you can undo what you ate by drinking. And when you drink, he brought down earlier that it's drinking of Purim, not necessarily drinking of wine. So that's really cool. And it's just kind of like, I don't need to know. So he does this whole thing about the Shema and the fact that the Ayin and the Dalit, which make the word for witness, which are two enlarged letters in the Shema, but you spell that word witness backwards, it becomes Da'a or Da, which means to know. And the fact that you witness what you know, which is that you don't know. When you understand that there's not, I can't know everything. Only Hashem can know. And I'm a witness to the one who knows what I don't know. And it's like this whole beautiful picture there. And so he says that this is how you do it. And so not knowing means transcending one's normative intellect in order to connect to a womb-like experience of creative awareness. In other words, you're going to end up being born again. He might as well just put that in there. So when we're born again, and we hearken to the voice of Hashem. A voice is connected to a thought, which is connected to a heart, which is connected to an action. And so when it's not our voice, but his voice, not our heart, but his heart, not his, not our thoughts, but his thoughts. That's how it, the whole picture is supposed to go. And Hashem will lead us exactly to where we need to go, which is forward into the Geula, I might add. Did I say Geula? Did I mention redemption? Did I mention end of exile? Did I mention be salty? Brukashem. So may it be so. May we experience the redemption speedily in our days. Ba'agala. Uh, 
in our lifetimes, in our days. Yeah, like it as we say in the Kaddish. Because by the way, that Revelations passage that says, Behold, I am coming to you quickly, which I believe is 22.7, it uses the word Ba'gala for quickly, like how we say in the Kaddish. Ba'gala, ba'gala, uvizman karif, vimru, amen. So yeah, let's get it going. Everyone have a good party time. May the fast be effective uh, as well as easy as possible uh, for all of us healthy people who can do it. And um, Hashem help us to all fight with joy and to be connected to a mitzvah. Uh, and may we see the coming of Mashiach with the rebuilding of the third temple and more proselytes than we ever seen in our entire life. Speedily and soon in our days, in our time. Amen. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Asher natan lanu Torah temet, Vekaye olam natabetokheinu, Baruch atah Adonai, Noten ha-Torah, Amen. Baruch haba b'shem Adonai.